All right. As I was saying, as I was so rudely interrupted. All right. It is Wednesday, and we're in one of those situations where we have our Romans situation that we're working on could be pushed to Sunday, but then it would be not really enough for a Sunday. So we're going to use it tonight, which I say it's not enough, and then we know what's getting ready to happen. Not, we're not going to finish it tonight. And now I'm going to even be in more trouble come Sunday. We may have to push, we may have to use Sunday school to finish it, and then we can move on Sunday morning, and then that'll kind of set aside our uh, 18 points of Pelagianism to Sunday night. We'll find a way to work it out, all right? Maybe. We'll see. But let's go back to Romans, and let's put this all back in context, and we'll see how far we can advance this discussion. Remember, we made it to Romans chapter 1, verse 2, right? And what happened when we got to Romans chapter 1, verse 2? We, we didn't crash and burn. We crashed and burned on the canons of Dort. We didn't crash and bor- burn here, because y'all did exactly what I asked on Romans. See, y'all did exactly what I asked, and it worked out perfectly, okay? Romans chapter 1, verse 2 tells us that the gospel was promised before time, and we read about these promises where? And the Holy Scriptures, which is a reference to the Old Testament. So I told all of you to find me five promises of the gospel as recorded in the Old Testament. Y'all brought me some verses. Some of them are like, okay, is that a promise of the gospel? We don't know. Others picked verses that were quoted in the Old Testament, but also cited in the New Testament. When we were, as we were working through all of them, it became obvious that some of these verses, especially the ones cited in the New Testament, felt like that they were possibly taking the Old Testament out of context. And I'm like, wait, this is a problem. Yes. Now, once we identified the problem, the reason we started identifying this problem is because the book of Romans cites the Old Testament something like 70 times, right? A lot. So we're going to see citation after citation of the Old Testament in Romans. So why not start dealing with the problem we're going to encounter in verse 2, right? Now, and fix the problem. One of the reasons we wanted to address the problem is because most Christians don't even know the problem exists, and they don't have a clue in how to resolve it. So, this is what we did. I gave everyone, we started working through seven different views that tries to explain how New Testament writers use and quote Old Testament passages of Scripture. Everybody remember that? All right, what was view number one? Census Planor, what's the, give me a, a quick summary of the Census Planor view. Okay, the Old Testament passage contained a deeper, we can, I'm going to kind of use this word, secret meaning that nobody was aware of. The writer didn't understand it, anyone reading the Old Testament wouldn't understand it, and all of a sudden, magically, it becomes revealed when the New Testament author quotes it. Now, what was one of the major problems with this? Okay, and what else does it possibly uh, come up with? Well, another, it, it does what uh, possibly cause problems with what, what major uh, doctrine? No? Perspicuity of Scripture, right? Because if that means it wasn't clear, and you couldn't see the clarity of it. In fact, even when the New Testament writer quotes it, it you don't actually see it. Like, you, you, you can, they can quote it all day, supposedly giving us the deeper meaning, but if I go back to the Old Testament, I'm still looking at it like, I can never figure that out, meaning that it was not 
clear. And if it's possibly not clear related to promises of the gospel, that would clearly destroy the doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture. All right. Number two. Jewish exegetical method. This simply states the New Testament writer is using the Old Testament, using Jewish exegetical methods that were present at that time. What's the major problem with this view? We don't know of any of the Jewish exegetical methods of that time that would give me the way Matthew 2.15 cites Hosea 11.1. There is not an an exegetical method that I know of that would ever work that way, okay? Number three. The canonical reinterpretation view. Simply put, they're basically the New Testament writer is reinterpreting the Old Testament passage. All right? Not exactly like the census plenor, but it's offering a reinterpretation that you couldn't what? You wouldn't be able to understand. So it still kind of goes after the perspicuity of Scripture. All right, next. Full human intent view. All right? Basically, what does that mean? Okay, simply put, that the way the New Testament writer is citing it is the way it was intended to be understood. And they're saying that this view is critical because it, 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 if you don't go with this idea, you destroy hermeneutics completely. Now, I don't think you necessarily destroy hermeneutics. I think this view, I would love this view if it made sense. The only problem is I don't see how you can read um, Matthew 2.15 and Hosea 11.1 and tell me that's what Hosea 11 was was meant, or what, well, that was his intention. I don't, I don't see it at all. All right, the next view. The eclectic view. Now, what was, now, this one, we spent a lot of time on the eclectic view. What are the steps you have to take on the eclectic view? First, you have to understand something. You've got to understand that New Testament writers use Old Testament passages different ways, at different times, for different purposes. All right, what is the second thing we have to do for the eclectic view? Okay, well, that's, that's kind of the first thing we have to do. We have to realize it, okay? Right? Then, next thing you have to do is you have to figure out how the New Testament writer is using the Old Testament passage. First, you've got to realize, wait a minute, they use them all kinds of different ways, right? And in fact, today I, was, I went through the whole list of every, every New Testament, or every Roman citation of an Old Testament passage. I went through them all again today for like the 15th time. And I'm just sitting there going, man, like, sometimes it makes sense what he's doing. Sometimes I don't have a clue what he's doing. Okay, but you have to try to figure out what he is doing. Like, why does, what, well, Paul is citing, like we saw Habakkuk, right, when he cited Habakkuk. Okay, Paul seems to be citing Habakkuk for this purpose. I've got to determine how he's using it. Because once I determine how he's using it, then I can determine if there's a problem or not a problem. The main thing with the eclectic view is it's simply allowing you, it's forcing you, not allowing, it's forcing you to go, okay, how is the New Testament writer using this? What is he trying to accomplish? Then it forces you to go back to the Old Testament to go, does that work? It doesn't work. And then it gives you the ability to choose one of these other views. Now, that's the part I added. They don't really add that in the eclectic view, but I'm I'm trying to use the eclectic view as the best possible. It gives you the ability then to try to say, if they, can do, if they can use it in different ways, then maybe they can use different views on what they are trying to accomplish. The eclectic view is my favorite because it puts you 
It forces you to do basic works of hermeneutics, forces you to actually work on the text, forces you to do what is required. Now, let me make it very clear. The eclectic view at its base level kind of destroys the perspicuity of Scripture as well. That it's not super clear. You got to you got to figure it out. Again, I, I think there's lots of problems with perspicuity of scripture. I really I know I've had I, you don't even know how many hundreds of emails I've gotten over people ticked off with me about this problem. But I don't care. They're not that clear. You can pretend all day they're clear. Was it clear what Paul was doing with Habakkuk two four? No, it wasn't because because we read it that Paul is trying to say, hey, righteousness comes by faith. Habakkuk seemed to be using it that righteous people. Live by faith. That's two different concepts, right? So, and that's very, that's very central to the gospel, is it not? All right. So I don't think it's all, I, again, I, I have some issues with the whole clarity thing there. So there's the eclectic view. All right. That brings us to which view? The analogical view. Now, we, we've worked on this a little bit, but now we're going to do, I hope you have your Bibles because we're going to be doing a little bit of work here. You ready? All right. Someone give me a simple definition of the analogical view. Okay, all right, let me read it, just to make sure everybody has it. One of the most common uses of the Old Testament and the New Testament is what might be referred to as the analogical use of the Old Testament because it establishes an analogy or comparison between an Old Testament passage and a New Testament situation. Rather than simply interpreting the Old Testament passage, he cites, Sometimes the New Testament writer identifies a principle found in the Old Testament passage and draws a parallel between that Old Testament principle and the situation he is addressing in the New Testament. So make this very clear. This is making the argument that the New Testament writer is not trying to reinterpret, not even trying to interpret the Old Testament uh, passage. He just sees an analogy. He sees some kind of a connection. So he can draw a parallel. Look at what was said here. I'm going to use it in this situation to draw a parallel, to draw an analogy. He's not trying to reinterpret it. He's not even trying to interpret it. He just sees that the writer sees a parallel and borrows from it. Like Matthew 2.15, something about coming out of Egypt, Right? Correct? Let everybody look at Matthew 2.15. Yeah. Everybody look at Matthew 2.15. And I'm not saying that this perfectly answers this, but I'm just giving you an example. Because we keep citing this one over and over and over again. All right, Matthew 2.15. Go to 14. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. Right? Everybody knows who he's, that's referring to? Joseph. Right, Joseph. He takes Mary and Jesus, right? Verse 15, was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled which was spoken uh, of the Lord by the prophet saying, out of Egypt have I called my son. He's just drawing a parallel. What's the parallel? Oh, Israel got called out of Egypt. Jesus got called. Just a parallel. He's not trying to interpret Hosea, Right? He's not trying to say, he's not trying to say Hosea was necessarily, 
that, and I know you've got to be careful the way this is worded, but kind of this, the, anal- the, the an- analogical view is trying to make, basically make an argument. This is not sitting here trying to say, oh, this is a perfect fulfillment of a perfect prophecy. He's just saying there's a parallel or an analogy here. Now, some could argue Matthew is trying to claim it's an actual fulfillment of a prophecy, which would create some problems. But if you kind of look at it from an analogical view, you kind of see that he's just taking a concept, right? And he's connecting the two concepts together. Israel's kind of referred to as God's son, called out of Egypt. Jesus is the son of God, called out of an analogy. All right. That, That helps because now I don't have to worry about every little detail. Does that make sense? Now, I like the analogical view, but I don't think the analogical view works on every Old Testament passage because they the Old Testament or the with every New Testament citation of the Old Testament because they cite it in so many different ways. So I like the analogical view to go along with the eclectic view where I can use the analogical view when it works. Does that make sense? All right. Now, they go on to say All right, you ready? Uh, Let me read down at the end of this. The strength of this understanding of the use of the Old Testament is that it honors the integrity of the clear meaning of the Old Testament passage in its original context, while at the same time providing a logical explanation of how the New Testament writer uses that passage to make a point in his context. Some possible examples include... They're going to give us some examples, all right? Do I want to go through these examples? Let's look at some of them quickly, all right? Because I want to get to, I want to finish this, but I'm afraid if we start looking at examples, I know what's going to happen, but here we go. Go to Isaiah 53.4. Isaiah 53.4, say amen when you're there. All right, everybody there? Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he hath borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Stop right there. All right. That everyone we know, because you've been in church for any length of time, we perceive that to be a messianic prophecy prophesying the suffering of Jesus. Correct? All right. That is, they reference, this is connected to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. Are you there? Verse, they say verse 17. All right. Now, if we go back to verse 14, we need context, right? Because what do we need to establish? Again, I like the eclectic view. I got to figure out what Matthew's doing or the writer of Matthew, what he's doing with Isaiah, right? If he's going to use Isaiah 53, 4, how is he using it, Right? So, how does he use it? Verse 14. And when Jesus was come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother laid and sick of a fever. And he touched her hand, and and the fever left her, and she arose and ministered unto them. When the evening, evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils. He cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick. Verse 17. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying, 
himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. All right. Now, you've got to be careful here. If you're a charismatic, you think this just proves what? Jesus heals everyone, right? But if we read Isaiah 53, is he talking about bearing our physical elements or is he referring to our spiritual Right? Now we got, we got to get into. The thing is, he's just drawing an analogy, right? There's an analogy. Something about what Jesus did was go ultimately about bearing, how does Isaiah say it? Okay, so that he bore things that caused us to suffer. Some kind of suffering he took upon himself, right? Okay, so, right, took our infirmities. All right, so, is, is he trying to interpret Isaiah in a way that says, hey, Jesus took care of all of our physical ailments, or is he just saying Jesus healed here and this is consistent with what Isaiah said? Is he necessarily trying to interpret Isaiah or just using it in an analogous way? Does that make sense? If we just giving an analogy, then we don't have to sit there and try to make it out into some major doctrine, Correct. Because this, this, these two passages turn into the entire basis for the charismatic world. Right? Well, we don't, clearly, Jesus didn't take all of our sicknesses because we all get and don't always get healed. So what is he doing? We think he's taking upon himself what? Our spiritual infirmity, our spirit, our sin. Right? So, and ultimately, he does take care of our physical problems, right? Because of salvation, we will receive a new Body with no more pain, no more suffering, no more death. But um, I think if it's just used in an anal- just as an analogy, a parallel, it's two concepts that fit, correct? All right. So this raises, again, a lot of questions on how to handle this. All right, go to Deuteronomy chapter 25. Deuteronomy 25.4 Thou shalt not muzzle the ox when he treadeth out the corn. All right, everybody see that in Deuteronomy? Now what's it talking about in its context? Deuteronomy 25. Yeah, it's talking about what kind of an ox? A real ox. Doing what? He's treading, plowing. Right? And what are you not to do while he's doing that? Don't muzzle him. Right? It's a, it's a real historical situation, a real law. Right? Now, New Testament's going to come along and take this. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Now, you tell me when Deuteronomy 25.4 was given as a law, if they understood it, not to refer to a real ox and real corn and a real muzzle, right? Are you telling me they understood this uh, at meaning what it's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 9, where we read what? For it is written in the law of Moses, thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn, doth God take care for oxen. Now, what are they referring to here? Referring to the right of apostles and teachers to do what? 
to be taken care of, or compensated, or benefit from their labor or their work. He's using a parallel, is he not? Is he trying to reinterpret Deuteronomy? Is he trying to say, that's what Deuteronomy really meant? Deuteronomy was telling the people of Israel, hey, teachers should be compensated and bear and be able to benefit from... No! No, no, no. He's using a parallel, an analogy. Does that make sense? Yes? Okay. All right. And, and I think that one... Now, that one's pretty clear. It should be clear. I don't think anyone's going to go back and read. But see, the thing is, sometimes it's clear, and then other times we go back and just reinterpret the Old Testament past. I don't think Christians have any idea in how to handle any of this. They're never taught. I mean... In discipleship class, you're not taught, hey, in the New Testament, you're going to see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of New Old Testament quotations and citations. This is how you handle it. No one teaches Christians how to do it. So they're on Facebook posting some nonsense from an Old Testament, and you're like, what are you doing? Right? And on some cases, you get mad at Christians for doing that, but in other cases, you know, churches should get the blame for not teaching their people how to do it. I just wish Christians didn't feel like they are the authority to start citing Old Testament passages that way. They have multiple ex- examples, but you're getting the idea? Now, does this always work? I don't think the analogy always works, because Paul, you, in Romans 1.17, using Habakkuk 2.4, I don't know if that's an analogy. I don't know what he's doing there. He seems to be using it more as an argument. So I don't think the, uh, the analogical view always works, but it needs to be in your toolkit when you're reading the New Testament. And you're like, eclectic view. Acknowledge that they use it in different ways, right? Determine how they're using it. Then figure out what the Old Testament passage is saying and then try to make a determination in how to understand it. The analogical view needs to be always ready to go. Everybody got that? All right. Let's go to the last one. Everybody for the, uh, for the last one? The typological. The typological use of the Old Testament. This is a specialized form of the analogical use of the Old Testament. All right. It involves what is known as typology. When a New Testament writer quotes or alludes to the Old Testament, sometimes he is highlighting a typological relationship between an Old Testament type and a New Testament antitype or antitype. This relationship consists of a correspondence between two events, persons or institutions, one in the Old Testament and the other in the New. Right? So, let me make sure I make that clear again. This relationship consists of a correspondence between two events, persons or institutions. One in the Old Testament and the other in the New. They're going to say, okay, here's two things. Right? Here's something in the Old. It can be what? An event a person or an institution. Here's this in the old. Here is this in the new. And there is, there's a type being set up. Here's the type in picture. Here's the type fulfilled. Here, I just throw an example out. Passover lamb. Real lamb. Really killed. Blood really applied to the door post. Right? New Testament. 
makes that a type that's fulfilled in whom? In Christ. I mean, it comes right out and says Christ is our Passover lamb. So that one is typological, right? He's not trying to necessarily reinterpret that. He's using it as a type. That's a different purpose. It's, it's not exactly, analogical is just saying there's an analogy here, right? Not necessarily trying to say it's a full-fledged type, but he, in some cases it seems to be a full-blown type. There's the type in shadow, here's the type in reality. Does that make sense? Okay, all right. Um, and I, I won't go through all the different things here, okay? Um, at the foundation of the typology, uh, at, the ty- at the foundation of typology is the fundamental conviction that God is consistently active in this world and therefore that events in redemptive history tend to follow a consistent, divinely ordained pattern. Pattern In this way, typology should be regarded not as an exegetical method or a system of hermeneutics, but a way of viewing history. They say typology should not be viewed as a means of hermeneutics or should not be considered an exegetical method. It should be considered as a way to see history. In other words, when I read biblical history, they're arguing that many cases that biblical history will serve as a type. And the type in the old will be shown in the new. That's the argument. Well, sometimes these views are very limited and they're like, this is the, this is the answer for every uh, Old Testament citation, which I disagree with because I don't, they're, they're used so many different ways. I think we can find some passages where the typological way works great. That's why I like the eclectic view because I need sometimes the analogical, sometimes I need the typological. I need a lot of different methods. I need a lot of things going on here, all right? Um. And, uh, well, they say a lot, a lot more here, but I think get you the basic idea. All right, the basic idea. Everybody got the basic understanding there? All right. I don't want to spend a lot of time with it because I, I get, you get the basic concept. Because I think, I think we do see sometimes, oh, I think there's a type. Now, what do you have to be careful with? You start making everything in the Old Testament a type. Right? People do that all the time. The ark. It's a type of Christ. Well, slow down. Slow down. Slow down. Are we sure? Are we sure? Does the New Testament cite it as a type? Oh, nobody here knows? Does anybody, does anybody here know for sure if the New Testament uses the ark, Noah's ark, as a type of Christ? Oh, come on. I don't think so. I'll just leave it there for y'all to figure out because y'all should know this if it does or if it doesn't. Okay. Um, I'm just saying, if, oh, it's preached all the time. And that the, the Hebrew word for the pitch they use has something to do with redemption. Oh, I've heard it all. Right. Let me just say 90% of that's just garbage. Okay. And just don't buy into it. It preaches good, Right. All right. Oh, these people were going to all perish, but he created an ark, right? And then you have to come into the ark, right? Uh, okay. Like, it, it, it sounds good, but that's creating a type. Oh, there's, there's a lot of problems with the whole way thing, the, the thing works, right? And clearly the ark wasn't designed for everyone. 
Okay. It, was this, it had a limited number of people that was going to be in the ark, and it was more for the salvation of animals, not for the salvation of people. Okay. You're like, well, everyone could have come in. No, they couldn't have, okay, because they had room for the animals and the people. It wouldn't have room for everybody. Okay, so how do you, how do you explain that? Well, it was good for those who, like, I don't know. It starts falling apart, and here's why it starts falling apart. You're creating the type. So be careful to say, oh, the New Testament's using the Old Testament and a type. You'll pretty much know when it is. Right? And I want to make this very clear. All of these views, these seven, they apply. Listen, I want to make sure, if, if you don't hear anything I say, everyone needs to wake up and listen to this part, okay? All right? Everybody needs to pay attention. These seven only apply to New Testament citations of Old Testament passages. This is not giving you a full-fledged hermeneutical method in how to interpret the Old Testament. This is how to explain New Testament citation of Old Testament verses. Does everyone understand that? I'm not giving you a hermeneutical method to interpret the entire Old Testament. That's a whole different concept. This is trying to fix, wait, why are they coming up with these seven? Because your normal hermeneutical methods don't work when you're like, what in the world is going on here and how the New Testament writer is citing Old Testament. They, they seem to violate our hermeneutical methods. That's why there's an, an entire additional, an additional area of study. Does that make sense? All right, now. Everybody going to write fast? I'm going to give you, oh man. Now once again, just like on Sunday night, my notes, for some reason when I bring my notes over to the iPad, instead of giving me numbers, it gives me question marks. Okay, so I've got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. It looks like 14 guidelines for interpreting the New Testament use of the Old Testament. All right? <clears throat> but you don't, don't put 14 down because I may start throwing some of these out. All right? Just put guidelines for interpreting uh, the New Testament use of the Old Testament. All right? Are you, now, <clears throat> I love this statement. You ready? The New Testament use of the Old Testament is one of the most difficult issues in all of hermeneutics. Did everybody hear that? The New Testament use of the Old Testament is one of the most difficult issues in all of hermeneutics. Now, you didn't believe that, and you may not still believe that, because you would think that apocalyptic literature would be one of the most difficult tasks in all of hermeneutics, or the book of Revelation, or the book of Ezekiel, or many of the minor prophets, or parts of Daniel. Right? But no, they're saying the New Testament use of the Old Testament is one of the most difficult issues in all of hermeneutics. And let me tell you something. No pastor thinks that's true. No Christian thinks that's true. No Christian publisher thinks that's true. Because nobody ever talks about this problem. I received emails going, why are you wasting time in the book of Romans dealing with this nonsense? I'm like, well, there's lots of other people teaching on Romans. You don't have to listen to me. Because I'm not going to change because you don't like it. Go away. Right? Because 
This is an issue that's got to be dealt with. But see, they don't perceive it to be what? A problem. What's the big deal? The big deal is you've probably been misinterpreting this forever. And we're dealing with the book of Romans. It's going to deal with the old, they're going to cite the Old Testament over and over and over again. We need to know how to handle it. Does that make sense? All right. Here's some of the guidelines that they give us. All right. They say the following are, uh, the following are a list of foundational presuppositions and interpretive guidelines that may help in the process of trying to figure out how to handle this. Right. They say, uh, they say the interpreter must approach this phenomenon with great patience, humility, and care. The interpreter must approach this phenomenon with great patience, humility, and care. I will argue 95% of Christians have never even approached this subject with anything. With just a passing acknowledgement. Oh, they, quite, they, they cited the Old Testament. They may, some Christians may actually take the time to flip back. Look at it and go, yeah, it's there. And move on. If that has been your approach, I say this in the most loving way that I can. You treated the word of God disrespectfully. You didn't care about the truth. You didn't care about understanding the truth. And you should have never argued with anyone ever about the word of God because you're not equipped or qualified to even have an opinion. Because you saw something in the text that you didn't even bother to care to figure out why. But those same Christians who do that are the ones who always want to argue with everyone about everything. And that's the stuff that drives me crazy. Like, you've got to show care. You've got to, like, if you're a Christian and you own a Bible, he didn't give it to you just to carry around. He gave it to you to understand. And you're the Protestants, right? You're supposed to say, I can interpret this. But nobody ever takes the time to actually... Let me say this. Reading it is not interpretation. Well, let me say it this way. Reading is a false interpretation because you interpret it. Because you read it, you're thinking about what it means, right? But you're not doing what? Interpretive work. You've got to do work. You've got to have patience. You've got to have care. You've got to take the time. I know when I say that, like, like Protestants get mad at me, but guess who... Protestants should never get mad at me for saying what I just said. Because Protestant theology demands what I'm saying. Most Protestants should be Catholic. Because they don't care. To, they, like Protestants always say, those Catholics don't care about the Bible, and those Catholics don't study the Bible. Show me Protestants who do! Protestants just want the ability to do what? This is what it means. Even if I don't study it but I don't have to listen to any magisterium tell me what it means. You should just give up and go, go back to the Catholic Church and let them tell you what it means. Then you wouldn't have the... Because guess what? When you reject the magisterium, who now has the responsibility? You do! You wanted the responsibility? Then do it! Isn't that what you tell your teenagers? You want to be treated like an adult? You want to act like an adult? Then you have the responsibility of an adult. Well, guess what? Hey, Protestants, you want to act like a Protestant? You want to be a a, a Protestant? Then take on the responsibility of being a Protestant. That's God's word. You claim you can interpret it. Then do it. And if you don't care to do it, then why did you want to be a Protestant? Well, I don't like robes, candles, and incense. 
And I think they're wrong about Mary. That's the reason? Right? And, and it shouldn't be a more fundamental, oh, I'm going to make so many people mad at me online. But I get, I get so tired of Protestants. Like, I can interpret the Bible. I can interpret the Bible. I never study. I never do anything. And I, I don't know how to do hermeneutics, but I can figure it out. Okay, great. And they never can. They never can. All right, here we go. Here's some of the principles. Number one, when the New Testament writers interpreted the Old Testament, they always do so according to the grammatical historical method of interpretation. When the New Testament writers interpreted the Old Testament, they always do, did so according to the grammatical historical method of interpretation. Ooh. Oh, man. Oh, I wish I was in a hermeneutics uh, classroom and seminary for this. Oh, the debate here would be so much fun. This would last all night, right? We would just say, forget it. Order pizza, stay up all night. We're going to fight. Th- th- this, would call- this is fighting words here. Okay? All right, let me see if anybody here catches the key word here, all right? When the New Testament writers interpreted the Old Testament, they always did so according to the grammatical, historical method of interpretation. What's the key word in that statement? No. It's pretty good. Not, we'll get, that's a B. Get a B. Okay, you don't get an A. You get a B. Oh, there we go. Ding, 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 ding. All right. Interpreted. Why? That shows, no, that shows that in cases where the New Testament writer is interpreting the Old Testament, I don't believe in every case they're interpreting. Right? So in cases where we, now, they may be, they may be making an argument that in every single citation they're interpreting the Old Testament, but I think as we've gone through these different views, and if you've done any work on this, I don't think, I don't think they're, inter- I don't think Matthew was interpreting Hosea. Right? Even some of the ones we were looking at, the, uh, those examples of the analogy, right? I don't think there was an interpretation going on. So I will argue, and listen carefully, if, If the historical grammatical method is right, and if the New Testament writer is interpreting an Old Testament passage, logic would dictate they would have to be using the historical grammatical method. Does that make sense? If the historical grammatical method is right, and I have a New Testament passage, and I'm saying, oh, they're interpreting the Old Testament as they cite it, then they would have to be using... The historical and grammatical. Now, if this guideline is true, then what should be true? What should be true is I should be able to shut the New Testament, go back to the Old Testament, utilize the historical grammatical method, and come to the same conclusion. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I don't think it works. I don't think it works in Jose. I don't, it definitely doesn't work in Deuteronomy. No way that Deuteronomy passes historical grammatical method is not going to have him giving me a principle that, no, he's using the ox as a, as a real thing. Now he's setting up a principle that's now applied to a different setting and a different situation. Is that interpreting it or he's applying it? 
Application versus interpretation. This raises lots of questions. This is an interesting guideline, but it raises lots of questions, okay? Now, I just have to ask, how many people here even know the basic steps of the historical grammatical method? Like if I took get a piece of paper, write out the steps, historical grammatical method. I mean, y'all have got to be using something to interpret the Bible, right? Okay, you're getting there. Okay, what would be? And now you're dealing with his, you're dealing with history. Okay, and yeah, now you'd have to name some principles that would apply to grammar. Okay, all right, all right. Okay, you're getting the basic ideas. Okay, all right. I just wanted to make sure that because because when you're reading, you've got to be using something to interpret, right? And so those now I know for those listening online, okay, we're not here. We just did not go through a thorough understanding of the historical grammatical method. I don't want people to start yelling at me that oh, well, he thinks that's the historical grammatical method. I understand it's more complex than that, but I'm just seeing if y'all have the basic principles down. Okay, all right. We, maybe at some point we'll have to come back to the historical grammatical. I just want you to understand that this principle is basically saying, hey, if a New Testament writer is interpreting, that's the key word, the, an Old Testament passage, he will be using the historical grammatical method. Now, I agree. It has to be true. If he's not, then, it violate, then that would argue that the historical grammatical method is not accurate. But what's the, what's the, the debatable point is we've got to determine if the New Testament writer is interpreting it or just simply using it as an analogy, borrowing language. Remember all the different things that they could possibly do. All right. Everybody got that? Does that make some sense? All right. Ooh, that one. Oh, I want to spend all day on that one. Okay, next. When the New Testament writers cited the Old Testament, they often did so without actually interpreting it. That's an important guideline. When the New Testament writer cited the Old Testament, they often did so without actually interpreting it. You see how that fits with the first one? That means some passages, they're not interpreting. So the first guideline would not apply. And every, when, sometimes when we're reading in Romans and Paul just starts throwing out Old Testament references, we've got to go, What's he doing here? Is he, is he interpreting it? Is he, what's he doing? That's why the eclectic view comes in. You've got to figure out what he's doing. And not in every case it's an interpretation. Right? You know how many pastors preach them as interpretations? And if you raise your hand and go, New Testament writers don't always interpret Old Testament passages. Some pastors will look at you like you're insane. And you're like, well, where did you go to seminary, buddy? Well, seminary, I, I don't know, I didn't care. Yeah. Well, I don't care. But, or he did care, and then he became a pastor and realized he was not supposed to care because you never teach what you learned in seminary and church. Which I'd be like, hey, I'm a doctor, and everything I learned in medical school, I forget. Because people don't actually care. Right? You would hope they would remember something. Okay, everyone should say amen. Okay, all right, all right, amen, right? Okay. Right. You know, true? Okay. All right. Oh, we're out of time. We're out of time. Ah, 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 ah. Ah. Makes me mad. All right. Let's do this real quick. All right. Real quick. I know y'all want to go home. Oh, I know you do. I understand. 
See, I, I, you know what? I appreciate that honesty, buddy. I appreciate that honesty. And, ju- and I'm going to reward that honesty by making you stay just a little longer, okay? But I appreciate that honesty because we're in church and the parents always lie. So I'm glad that there's some kids who tell the truth. All right. Um, just quickly, let's look at, uh, go to Romans chapter 2, verse 24. Uh, this is homework. Everybody was supposed to be working on, but <clears throat> I'm not going to ask if you did it. Romans 2, 24. We'll just look at one really quick. We're going to do a lot of this probably for Sunday school. So Romans 2.24. If this li- if the, uh, I will repost this list in the, uh, on the Sermon and Bible Study Notes section of the app. I think it's there already, but I'll repost it. I've been working on John 10.10 all week. So, all right. Romans 2.24. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you as it is written. Everybody see that? Romans 2.24. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you as it is written. What is he quoting there? Isaiah 52.5. Now, please note, this is an interesting thing because for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you... As it is written. What, what's he trying to say here? And all of a sudden, though it's written, he's going back to Isaiah. Okay? So is, is he saying that Isaiah prophesied this? What is he saying? How is he using it? <clears throat> everybody there? All right. They, uh, I have here Isaiah 52.5. Does everybody else have the same cross-reference? Okay, Isaiah 52.5. All right, this is crazy. Isaiah 52, 5. Now, therefore, what have I here, saith the Lord, that my people is taken away for naught, that they rule over them, that they, they that rule over them make them to howl, saith the Lord, and my name continually every day is blasphemed? Now, it says it is written, right? <clears throat> supposed to be some kind of a quote, right? What's he doing? <laughs> what is he doing? Now, what do we have to determine? Okay, first, first we need to determine what's Paul doing. So, can anybody look at Romans and tell me what you think he's, what point he's trying to make? Let's go verse 17 for context. Does that sound like a good place to start? All right. Verse 17. Behold, thou art called a Jew and uh, restest in the law. Okay, I was a restest. Okay. All right. King James. All right. There we go. Behold, thou art called a Jew and restest in the law and makest thy boast of God and knowest his will and approvest the things that are more excellent being instructed out of the law. And are confident that thou myself are a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which hast uh, the form of knowledge and, uh, uh, and of the truth in the law. 
I tell you, the way Paul writes sometimes, you're like, what are you talking about? Okay, verse 21. Thou therefore, which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself, that thou preachest, that thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? All right. Now, who's he uh, seeming to be going after in verse 17? The Jews, right? They seem to have the law, correct? They seem to have some disagreement with Paul, and he, he goes after them for what? <clears throat> do you teach the law, but basically do what? Turn around and violate the law, right? Verse 22, thou sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law, dishonoreth thou God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you. Who's he referring to? To the Jews. The Gentiles blaspheme God through you or what? What could be another way of possibly saying it? Because of you. I think that's, would you say that's fair? Okay. Because of you. Or why? Because they're the ones who supposedly have the law, but they keep breaking the law. All right. And then he says, as it is written. So he's using whatever happened in Isaiah. I don't think he's trying to, is he trying, I don't think he's trying to reinterpret or interpret Isaiah. I think he's trying to use what? A parallel or an analogy. Would we say that this is a possible time to pull that out? What's the, what's the point in Isaiah? What's going on in Isaiah? Who's he talking to? What's happening? They're in bondage. Okay. Yeah. I think he's kind of making an argument that because of something, his name's being blasphemed, right? Because of something that's happening, right? He's using an analogy that because of the actions of some leads to the blaspheming of God's name. I think he's just using a, a, a principle. I don't think he's, he's not trying to, re, re, is he try, he's not trying to reinterpret Isaiah. I think he's just saying, hey, there's a similar, there's a, uh, an analogy here. There's a parallel. God's name was being blasphemed in Isaiah 52 and it was being blasphemed as a result of something or someone was causing his name to be blasphemed. Does that seem to kind of be fair to the Isaiah passage? Right? And now he takes that because it seems like in Isaiah, who's blaspheming his name in Isaiah? Is it the people in captivity are blaspheming his name? Or is it the people who put them in captivity are blaspheming? Who's doing the blasphemy? He makes them to how? So is it the one who brought them into captivity, right? Babylonians, right? Brought them into captivity, forces the people now to howl, to be upset, and to possibly blaspheme their name. Now, now note how he's using it. Now he's flipping it around. Hey, Jews, you're making the Gentiles. He's, he's using it almost in a, in a parallel way, but he's kind, of, he's kind of reversing it to use it against the Jews. Does that make sense? Right? Hey, remember when, y'all, remember when this was the complaint? Remember when this happened? You're guilty of the same thing. Right? Now, you see, when you take the time to figure it out, you see how it can sometimes make a passage even have a little bit more impact? 
right? Like here he's kind of using it almost in a sarcastic way, right? Like different ways, different time. He's not necessarily reinterpreting Isaiah. He's not changing what happened there. And he's not trying to say that it was prophesying what was going to happen here. He's just using it as a parallel and kind of using it as a backhanded slap. Right? That gives it more power. Okay. All right. I just want to make sure we're going to be working on these a lot. We're going to be, I mean, I, w- I want y'all, I mean, I want y'all doing the work. I don't want y'all to wait for me to do the work for you. Okay. I want you struggling through these. I want you to look at them and have that initial thought of, because I've looked at these and I've gone, and I'll just walk away and I'm like, okay, I'm going to go listen to some music and come back in an hour because I don't know what I just read. And then I'll come back going, what? Right? I want that. I want you to become proficient. At See, if you don't become proficient, then we are wasting our time. I'm not doing this for my benefit. I had to study all of this. I had to do it for school. This is for your benefit. Because you all supposedly read the Bible, I hope. Right? Every time you read the New Testament, you come with contact over and over and over of them using Old Testament passages of Scripture. You've got to know how to handle it. I want you so proficient that when your Christian friends say, hey, I was reading this today, and you're like, oh, they quoted the Old Testament. How do you understand how they're using that? I want you to be able to teach them. All right? Make sense? All right. Okay, so keep working. All right? If you need to write down the next few, the iPad will be sitting here. You can just come up here and write down the next few. I got, I got both, the, New Te- the Romans passage and the, I got the whole chart. If you see a little star, you can skip it because I don't know what's going on in those passages. It doesn't say it's written. I don't even know why people think he's using I don't know what's going on. So the stars, don't wor- worry about I don't know what's happening there, okay? Yeah, I've, get, I've already placed these in the app, but just if you need the next few, just so you don't have to look anything up, please come get them. Um, and I'll try to post this chart in the app again. All right. Any questions? All right. I'm, I'm, I hope you understand that this isn't important. I know you're like, man, we could be on Romans you know, chapter four by now. Well, first, we wouldn't be. But second, okay, what would be the point? Don't be a smart aleck. What would be the point of being in chapter four if we're just skipping how he's using the Old Testament passages? When verse two tells me, that, hey, Paul's getting ready to use the Old Testament to show that the gospel was promised in the Old Testament. Hey, then I need to know what in the world Paul's doing with the Old Testament. Hey, in fact, just think, you can't even understand the book of Hebrews if you don't deal with it. We should have dealt with this in the book of Hebrews, but we, we didn't really too much because I had other goals in mind. There, I wanted you to learn how to read Hebrews in a historical context of 70 AD. So I had a goal in mind for that t- time through. That's why you could teach the same book five times through, and each time I would have a different focus. Because I would have a different hermeneutical thing I'm trying to accomplish. You say, well, you should just accomplish all of them. Then we would, never, we would still be in the Gospel of John that we started with the first book we got here. And we didn't think we would ever finish that. Yeah, so, no. Um, I, I, sometimes you have to figure out what's your goal for this book. Right? First Corinthians, what was my goal? A letter written to church in a city influenced by... Showing how the church is influenced by culture, right? That was the, see, each book I've had a purpose, right? Okay. And sometimes I don't think when I'm done with a book, anyone ever caught on, but uh, there really is a method to my madness. Uh, there really, sometimes, okay. Sometimes I'm more like, what? what is going on? What happened here? Okay. All right. But now we're good to go, right? So Sunday school, we're going to show up. We're going to go through the, all the principles. 
Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I'm not going to show up. Okay. Okay. Uh, we're, gonna, uh, we're just going to back up and put all the principles, and then we're going to start working. We'll do some work on Romans during Sunday school, uh, or those passages, and then, I don't know, we may flip it around and do the 18 points of Pelagius in uh, this morning worship. Because I can finish 18 points of Pelagianism in one hour, can I? you a bunch of backstabbing, mean people. Okay, uh, that's true, that's true. You just stab me right in the gut, right? You don't even wait for me to turn around, okay? You look me in the eye and it, okay, people are like, that's a violent church. They are. They are all, all ex-murderers and all been in prison 13 times. Okay, all right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Lord, I pray that people who hear this will understand the challenge that we as Christians have been given a gift. It's your word. You didn't give it to us so that we can carry it around and look righteous. You gave it to us so that we would read it understand it, memorize it, love it, focus on it, study it, and share it with others. And I pray that we would learn to take your word seriously and understand that just reading it is not enough because we have to interpret what we read and you cannot do that by simply reading. You're going to have to take the time to actually study. And I pray that we would all be convicted by that and it would lead to a more studious a group of Christians, not only here, but all the people who are listening online. And I pray that they would accept this rebuke in the way it's meant and not just simply want to argue, but simply want to be better challenged and equipped in how to handle your word. And I pray you would accomplish that. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said. you just heard was made using Anchor. Ever thought about making your own podcast? Anchor makes it really easy for anyone to get started. It's a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing podcasts. Best of all, it's 100% free. Sign up now at anchor.fm slash new. That's anchor.fm slash new to get started.